Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss essential topics about the art and culture of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Cinangeli. Andiamo avanti. Welcome back, Renaissance people. We're going to jump right into this second part of the, our, our interseason trilogy, focusing on Filippo Brunelleschi, the early Renaissance in Florence, and, importantly today, the dome of the Florence Cathedral. When we last left off, Lorenzo Ghiberti has effectively earned the commission for the baptistry doors, either through a tie or by outright beating Brunelleschi in the competition, most of you responded to the poll on Instagram after looking at the panels, which I posted, and you guys, seems like you believe that Ghiberti was the outright victor, which I thought was interesting. We discussed those bronze panels they produced and how we are, are already seeing a deliberate move to emulate forms in classical sculpture by both artists. So what was next for Brunelleschi and Ghiberti? Well, Ghiberti worked on those doors for over 20 years, while Brunelleschi has left for Rome. During this period, the city of Florence commissioned the exterior decoration of a structure known as Or San Michele, which became a dual task for Ghiberti. It was originally a grain market that was subsequently transformed into the kitchens for the monastery of St. Michael, thus the Orto or it's like an herb garden, right, of St. Michael, or San Michele, one word as it's known today. This is a must-see stop if you visit Florence. It's located at the midpoint between the Palazzo Vecchio and the Duomo. The exterior has 14 niches in which each guild in Florence at the time was asked to hire an artist to fill with sculptures of their particular patron saint. Many of these sculptures are major points of reference for the sculptural development in the early Renaissance in Florence. Indeed, Donatello completed sculptures for two of the guilds, creating his famous St. Mark and his St. George. The Merchants Guild would hire Verrocchio in the 1460s, uh, Leonardo's master, if you remember him. Today, they're copies. I think there might be an original or two out there. I'm not entirely sure. But most of these sculptures are in museums. They have copies on the outside that are um, also gorgeous. Interestingly, there is a contested attribution to the St. Peter that it actually may be by Brunelleschi after his time in Rome studying ancient Roman statues. Because Brunelleschi will come back and forth a bit, right? Ghiberti certainly would complete three sculptures for Orsan Michele, either during or after his time working on the North Doors. For the Calimala, one of the most important Florentine guilds, Ghiberti completes his St. John the Baptist, which really is a demonstration of his excelling in bronze sculpture, being the first life-size bronze in centuries to be cast in a single pour of molten bronze. Ghiberti is a man of firsts to be sure, if we recall his first idealized full nude in his Isaac. Don't worry, guys, I'm getting to my point here. His style in this statue sets up an important set of references to help us understand what is going to happen in Brunelleschi's architecture. Try to follow this line with me, and how this helps us understand the cultural movement that is happening in Florence 
in both sculpture and architecture almost simultaneously. I'm talking about the Gothic style, which was predominant in most of Europe, and it was really a major representation of the cultural spheres developing beyond the Alps, north of Italy, in France and Germany. I'm not going to elaborate in too many details, but factors around climate and the political implications of emulating style of design made the developing Gothic style in Italy a bit wishy-washy. So, Ghiberti St. John the Baptist for Orsan Michele is a manifested form of what is called international Gothic style in sculpture, where the popular Gothic elements from the north, namely the coils in the hair, the fork in his beard, his unnaturalistic sway in his body, is combined with the Italian move towards realism in anatomy, which hadn't come to full form yet. Facial expression, the very classical contrapposto, if you guys remember what that is, the counterweight in the hip, that renders the pose naturalistic, a move away from the traditional stagnancy of Gothic sculpture towards the classical Roman and Greek style. Yet, both maintain their strong visual components in Ghiberti's St. John the Baptist. We can see this exact same move in what is happening with the Duomo, the cathedral. As we discussed in the last episode, the Florence Cathedral is taking a long time to build. It's started in the period of relative acceptance of Gothic visual themes, and you can see that today in the pointed arches on the exterior of the side aisles. Inside, the nave and the side aisles are raised with Gothic vaults. And if we're keeping in mind that it was more or less constructed from the front to the back over a very long period of time, that kind of makes sense, right? Keep in mind that the very Gothic facade that you see on there today, it wasn't actually completed until the 19th century. And I know that's disappointing. In the 1400s, it had an incomplete facade, but that was later removed. The concept of a dome, however, is not Gothic, but rather a classical architectural concept. There were two known colossal domes that the Florentines would have maybe had in mind. One is the Hagia Sophia Church in Istanbul, today it's a mosque, uh, which was commissioned by the Emperor Justinian towards the end of the Roman Empire. And the other, of course, is the Pantheon in Rome, the city where Brunelleschi has run off to, right, after maybe losing to Ghiberti and is kind of fed up with all this Florence stuff, right, leaving Florence without yet solving how to span a dome across the designated space in the cathedral, which was larger than both the Pantheon and the Hagia Sophia, okay? Rome, as we know it today, is the result of excessive innovations during the Baroque period, right? 15, end of the 15, 1600s, um, which actually came in light of the high renaissance moving from Florence to Rome on the Pope's dollar. In the 1400s, Rome was far from how we know it today. It was still in ruin. It was damp. It was underpopulated, still trying to bounce back from the bubonic plague. The heritage of the ancient Roman Empire lay everywhere, but was left to fall below the mud and the dirt. 
But as I've made clear, there were cultural influences in Florence that sparked interest in this ancient heritage that's kind of falling into more and more disrepair and ruin under Rome of the 1400s. So, Brunelleschi went to Rome, accompanied by none other than Donatello, who was a young man at the time. Together, Brunelleschi and Donatello, they dug, they studied, they observed, studying, surveying the ruins of the ancient city to the best of their ability. So, when we're talking about the Renaissance as a movement that looked to revive classical antiquity, it can be taken quite literally in this case, where these men were exhuming ancient artifacts which were buried like the dead. No doubt we see the result of this in their art and their architecture, the products which will inspire the next generation of artists as well. Among those ruins and structures, Brunelleschi was sure to have taken interest in the Pantheon. For those who have not been to Rome, this structure still produces shock and awe to this day. It is a gigantic temple, which at the time of its construction under Emperor Hadrian in the 2nd century AD, was a dedicated temple to the planetary deities of ancient Rome. Keep in mind that we still refer to planets today based on their relation to Roman gods, like Jupiter, Venus, Mars, etc. Importantly, the dome of the Pantheon itself is not a mere imposed semicircle on a drum. Rather, it's a half of an entire sphere that dominates the entire interior space of the structure. You don't actually see the lower half of the sphere, but that's how the construction of the building was. Almost like a drum around a sphere with the dome. The space was meant to evoke the feeling of being in a celestial space, which it achieves expertly. Can we imagine Brunelleschi encountering this space, the Florentine who, as a young man, lived in the shadow of the cathedral, who watched it being built, who left Florence in shame, who knew they did not know how to build the dome over that massive expanse of the cathedral? What we have is someone who was on the verge of figuring it out. If the ancient Romans could construct a dome that large, Brunelleschi could design one that is wider and taller. So he hoped. And he was right. Now, the dome of the Pantheon itself was not perfect, but was the result of several innovative techniques. One major issue in dome construction is that the weight of the dome can cause it to collapse on itself. There had to be a pressure system to keep it locked in, or otherwise a way to diminish all of that excess weight. And this is what Brunelleschi had to figure out. What the Romans did was use lighter materials the higher they went with the dome. The solid base held up what was ultimately a dome that was made of concrete, famous Roman concrete. But they made it lighter by how they mixed it. Right, they were using lightweight, tough, and pumice stone to make the concrete less dense and therefore lighter and easier to hold itself up. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Renaissance people, if you are enjoying the Italian Renaissance podcast, I have good news. We're now active on Patreon. 
You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources, information, and artworks. Better yet, those who join the Renaissance Master or Renaissance Patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month. My goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. They also subtracted materials to lighten the dome. The entire vault of the Pantheon is coffered. Roman coffering is essentially uh, architectural design that removes top weight by introducing sunken in usually square shapes, right? You're basically taking away, carving them out. The entire dome of the Pantheon is coffered, which removes enormous amounts of weight from the entirety of the dome itself so that it can hold itself up. And lastly, the Pantheon has what is called an oculus, which simply means eye. This is a large circular hole cut from the very apex of the dome. This is both practical and functional. For one, it removes the weight from the bearing down at the very top center of the dome, which prevents the collapse. But if we keep the celestial importance of the structure in mind, it also allows a window to the sky when you're inside and your gaze is inevitably drawn upward by the design of the building. During the day, it allows the sun to look in and it casts an ovular disc inside at any given time, which moves around the space. In the evening, the sphere of the dome becomes one with the stars, even offering glimpses to the distant planets that the temple was in homage to. I'll never forget actually going inside the Pantheon during a rainy afternoon in Rome, and the water just streamed in through the oculus, almost like an even pillar of falling water, and it was like slightly illuminated by the sun behind the clouds. Nothing stops it from coming in, and it doesn't hurt the marble floor. It's really quite a scene, one that probably Brunelleschi had access to. And yet, even as Brunelleschi observed it, the interior of the dome was cracked. So there were concerns with trying to figure out how exactly they did it. He was reassured that it was possible, and he was inspired by the structure, no doubt. He just needed to do it better and more securely. Brunelleschi returned to Florence on a more permanent basis around 1416. Importantly, Possibly from the exercises he used in surveying Roman architecture, he developed what we know today as linear perspective. Although he likely developed it at first for these architectural surveys, it became most important in painting, particularly after Leon Battista Alberti writes about it in detail in his treatise on painting, which I've talked about before. 
which becomes the singular mode of Renaissance painting after the 1430s. This starts with Brunelleschi, okay? Yet, now in 1418, most of the structure of the cathedral is, in, is, is built, including now an octagonal drum, which would be the base of the dome, but no dome. At last comes the next competition to submit an architectural model for the dome. With no real architectural training, Brunelleschi submitted a model along with, guess who? Oh, Lorenzo Ghiberti, who likewise was not a trained architect. I don't think an overcomplicated history of who all the appointees to the building committee were, I don't think that's necessary. What is important is that both Brunelleschi and Ghiberti were appointed Campo Maestri. Campo Maestro is an overseer, right? of the dome construction. Here we are, both of them appointed, but based ultimately on Brunelleschi's model. Whereas with the baptistry doors, we saw an enraged Brunelleschi. This time, he knew that he had this project under his control, and he accepted it alongside Lorenzo Ghiberti. In truth, there are multiple theories about how the dome itself was constructed. Keep in mind that dome construction has to account for both inward and outward force, as well as the weight that produces that force. Further, the very northern Gothic buttress, or support beam, was not going to serve as a support system, but rather enlarged piers at the dome's base, supported by the drum. Additionally, Brunelleschi invented the very mechanisms used to hoist the masonry to that height, earning fame just for that type of innovation in itself. The dome was built between 1420 and 1436. Remember, being on an octagon, it would be made of eight segments that form the shape of the dome. Because of the established Gothic architectural base, the dome itself is not actually spherical or classicized to reference the Pantheon visually, but it's more like an egg shape due to the apex of the eight pointed sections. To answer the question of weight, it was designed in a shell structure, there being an inner and an outer shell, and the additional weight of, is subtracted from the space in between. This created ample room to maneuver within the dome, which you can still do today if you have good knees. It also created a double layer of protection. The base of the dome is made of stone, but becomes brick as you go higher to make it lighter, just like the Pantheon. Just instead of concrete, it's stone to brick versus stone to concrete to lighter concrete. The brick masonry used in the majority of both shells is what's called a herringbone design, which serves as interlocking brickwork for structural stability. Since he had to create counterpressure without buttressing, accounting for what is known as hoop stress, the outward pressure of a circular dome, Brunelleschi devised a system to contain the outward stress of the dome. The first being a series of nine horizontal ribs between the two shells of the dome. The second, and the most important, is four massive 
chains is what they're referred to, made of stone and iron, and one made of wood, totaling five chain structures and nine ribs positioned between the shells to hold the pressure of the dome. Guys, it worked. The end result was a structure that was closer to Gothic in design, but was ultimately the result of Brunelleschi's ingenuity through his voyage in Rome. Are we, are we understanding that? Now, the oculus, remember that hole in, in the top of the Pantheon, the oculus space on the Pantheon also had to be filled with what is called a lantern. Its design is Brunelleschi's, the result of another competition where he finally beat Ghiberti, who was now officially no longer Campo Maestro of the project with Brunelleschi. Ghiberti, in fact, would go on to do the next set of doors for the baptistry, known as the Gates of Paradise. Also, just as his father, Giovanni de Bici de' Medici, was the judge of the competition panels for the doors of the baptistry, Cosimo de' Medici, Donatello's dear friend and patron, was consulted in the decision-making for the lantern. An interesting component to the competition for the lantern is that, although Brunelleschi does ultimately win, it is noted that a female architect entered the competition, which is highly unusual for the early 15th century, so we still believe as of now. She is referred to simply as una femina, or a female, in the pages of the Codice Maglia Becchiano, um, but also by Vasari. She's referenced to as una donna di casa Gadi, or a lady of the house of Gadi from which the influential Trecento painter Tadeo Gaddi comes from. Only five of the six people who submitted models are mentioned in the records of the Opera del Duomo, meaning a name was omitted. It's strange and, frankly, unfortunate. What we know is that there is room for whoever she is in the record, and that Vasari completed his lives of the artist through painstaking research and direct interviews with families and associates. That he had one or multiple sources to conclude the woman as part of uh, the Gadi family is actually credible, especially given that most pre-modern women who got artistic training in Italy belonged to noble households or were the offspring of craftspeople who trained them. Brunelleschi won the commission given that he would make use of the aspects of the other models that would improve the design of the lantern. So, it could be possible that this anonymous female gaudy architect had a final influence on the final design of the dome that was omitted. The lantern itself, interestingly, calls on the flying buttress design of the Gothic, but merges them with the Ionic Greek order. That is, those like scroll-like column capitals, which uh, helps in creating a completely unique design by Brunelleschi and the other models that influenced his ultimate design of the lantern. And just a side note, lanterns do what it sounds like. They let in light at the top of the dome, but also serve as a decorative piece and press weight on the rest of the dome, locking in all of that pressure. Filippo Brunelleschi dies in 1446, 
The lantern was not finished until decades after, meaning that he never saw his own masterpiece completed. Today, a sculpture of his, of him, sits at its base looking up at the dome. The only gesture that can be made to put us at ease that we can also readily enjoy one of the greatest architectural works in history. In total, it's 45 and a half meters in diameter and 116 meters high. Damn. It was the tallest and the largest dome ever built until that time. If you find yourself in Florence, there is a local dish that I highly recommend. It is called Peposo di Brunelleschi. So the story goes, the laborers who worked on the roof tiling on the outer shell would use broken pieces of terracotta to cook. They would make their fires in the piazza below, take the cheapest cuts of meat they could get, and slowly stew them in red wine in the terracotta. The dish is excellent, and it's based on the history of the construction of this dome. Another interesting tidbit, at the very top of the lantern is a gold ball and cross that was part of Brunelleschi's design and was eventually sculpted by Andrea del Verrocchio. On a dark and stormy night in 1601, that ball was struck by lightning, and it fell from the lantern and it landed in the piazza far below. A large circular piece of marble was placed where Verrocchio's ball was found the next day. And you can go to that spot still and stand where it landed, because that round kind of piece of marble is there marking, marking its position. And you can look up. You can see how far that fell and how it would squash someone flat if people were out and about on that rainy day. It's quite the experience. I hope you guys are coming away with a better understanding of the Dome of Florence and the history around it. Architecture is very complicated, and we do not address it much around here, normally doing painting and sculpture and assassinations, right? But I'm really, really pleased that we did it. Keep in mind, I presented the major known aspects of dome construction. There are still mysteries that we do not yet have uh, the, the knowledge as to how it was erected. And frankly, we probably never will. We're going to do one more episode on Brunelleschi, going over more architecture in Florence under his design, and how this new style that he adapted from Rome would become the standard of Florentine Renaissance architecture. As always, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, where I post tons of images to accompany the show. Leave a review, pretty pretty please, and never be shy to reach out. I love talking to you all and the engagement and conversations we make are awesome. So until next time, arrivederci.